everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Separation is in the Preparation podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Philip Kiefer. Philip, how are you? I'm great, Wallace. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Super excited to, uh, to have you on. So to begin, could you just uh, introduce yourself briefly to the, to the listener and then talk a bit about what you do? Yeah, so my name's Philip Kiefer, as said before. Um, I'm a reporter in New Orleans, and um, I wear a lot of different hats. I So my sort of consistent jobs are I cover public health for a local investigative outlet. I cover daily science news for popular science, and then I do a little bit of science and environment reporting as a freelancer on the side. Um, I'm pretty green, and so I think like a lot of <laughs> your reporters, just kind of cobbling together income off of as many things as I can, as I can find. Right, and um, was was being a reporter, being a journalist being kind of a, using writing as kind of a means of, of, of making money. Was that always something that you were, you were interested in doing? So this is where I think I'm going to just go into this, um, where there are a lot of things tying together from your questions. Um, but I'll, I'll cut into an answer on it. You know, I don't, I, I don't think I would have said that journalism was something I was always interested in doing. Um, I always liked writing and I always liked listening to journalism. Like I wrote my college admissions essay about Radiolab, which feels really trite in some ways now, but I, I never really connected those two things. It was like, oh, I kind of like the sort of storytelling um, fantasy element of writing when I was in middle school. Um, and I liked the um, sort of wondrousness of science reporting, but it, it never clicked that, oh, you can, you can be someone who does that thing. Um, but then in college, so in college, I started off as um, just thinking that I wanted to do science broadly. I didn't really know what that meant, but I was like, oh, I like science journalism, so I should do science. Um, so I did chemistry and then I majored in math because I was like, this is something that gives you a little window into all of the sciences. Um, but none of that totally clicked. And then at some point, I, I, I my junior year, I took a course with someone who was a journalist and had done a bunch of science reporting. Um, and just sort of having that model <laughs> was like a light bulb. I was like, oh, oh, I don't actually like doing science that much, but there is a viable career here in doing the thing that I really like, which is hearing about science and sort of digesting it and talking to scientists about what they do. Yeah, no, I mean, I certainly don't have the reporting experience that, that you do, but even just with with the little brief amount of time I've been doing this podcast, it really is a really cool kind of role to have where you can sort of dip your toes into all these different, I guess, bodies of water for lack of a better better metaphor and learn learn little things about all these different things that might be that might be interesting to you. So 
when you, I guess, tried to make the jump to, to becoming, a, to becoming, becoming a reporter, were you trying to sort of hone in intentionally on that sort of science niche or was it just kind of like, sort of, you mentioned anything that you could sort of get your hands on? I, I definitely um, knew, or I don't know if I would say knew, I think at the, when I graduated, I sort of had this idea in my head, like, oh, okay. Journalism was something that I found very attractive out of this one class. Science journalism obviously seems like what interests me about that, but I don't totally know if that's attainable. Obviously, it's a field that's contracted by, um, I mean, we've lost like 50% of the print reporters in the U.S. over the last 15 years. Um, so I, I was kind of figuring that, I don't know, I, I really don't have a great memory of what my sort of long-term vision was, but what I did was I um, became a communications intern for an ecology lab, one of the branches of the Smithsonian. Um, and so I was communicating with reporters and kind of putting together material about the research that scientists were doing and really just getting to hang out with scientists and kind of learn how they talked about their research. Um, and then I kind of bootstrapped that into doing some freelancing on the advice of another Lakeside grad, Susie Nielsen, um, who's now a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and then I bootstrapped that into an internship at a city magazine, which obviously was not science reporting at all, um, but I, and I think you're going to ask about this later, but there's this very much sort of this veil over the process of pitching and getting into a publication, especially in sort of the magazine world. It's really, um, really arcane feeling. Um, so I did this city magazine thing at the Seattle Met in Seattle obviously <laughs> and then sort of from there like f moved myself further and further into what felt like long-term jobs um yeah that was a little bit meandery but no no that's no it's it's really cool to kind of i guess hear about the path that you took and you touched on a little bit there and i think we'd be great to sort of get into a little bit more can you talk about i mean based on your past experiences based on kind of how you're pitching stories now how do you sort of try and package things? Cause I imagine you just, you gravitate towards stories that you, that are inherently interesting to you, right? But your interests may not necessarily align directly with your editor or the person who's in charge of putting out content for the publication. How do you kind of try and package what is something that you're kind of inspired to write about um, in a way that can, I guess, allow you to, to pick it up for whatever publication you're writing for? Well, I feel like part of it is just knowing when to drop an idea. Like there are tons of things that I find really interesting, um, but that I now know are not, at least in the moment right now, going to be stories. Um, and so part of it is just knowing when something is both interesting to me and likely to be interesting to an editor. And obviously that's gonna depend a ton on the actual publication, like what I think is going to be interesting to an editor. But I mean, the unifying thing that people, or the distinction that I've heard made, um, 
Actually, no, no, no. So the, the thing that drives a lot of long form reporting is you have a character or you, you literally have a story to tell with a beginning, middle and end, you know, mm-hmm. somebody encounters a problem and here's how they solve the problem. So if you can find that, that's like a very good sign that there is actually a story there. Um, and the way I've heard sort of story ideation described that I really like is, um, you know, some people start with a topic and then go mining for gold. It's like, I'm interested in deep ocean mining or, um, I don't know, something I'm interested in right now is uh, like non-Western farming practices in the Americas. And then you go looking for a character or a narrative to hang that idea on. And then the other way of approaching sort of putting together a compelling story would be you start with a character and then you sort of build outward from there. Like what's the larger resonance of this thing? But that tends to be the two elements that I'm kind of looking for, right? Is like some kind of plot with scenes, with a beginning, with a problem um, and this larger resonance. And I, I think it's that resonance that gets more tailored to the publication, right? It's like, if it's outside magazine, then it's probably something about how people relate to outdoor recreation and public lands. You know, if it's National Geographic, it's probably something more about the state of science, although my own reporting there has not been that, but you know, something along those lines. Right. And is that process of finding the plot, finding a character, finding something that has gonna, is going to have a larger resonance. Is that pretty consistent for you? I mean, maybe we can sort of just dive in a little bit to sort of how you try and break down, um, like you need to have a story. What's your process of trying to find it? I, I think I can probably speak to that best in the context of the public health reporting I'm doing right now, because a lot of that work is like, hey, I'm hearing that there are these issues with, um, I don't know, in one instance, the potential long-term prospects of an emergency feeding program in the city, or maybe, um, you know, are, there's a, there's been this long running, um, program to house people who are unsheltered in hotels during the pandemic as a public health response. And so in those cases, it's like, okay, who do I find who can sort of humanize this policy question? Um, And that basically looks like going to often the advocates and activists who are sort of telling me about this issue in the first place and being like, okay, who are you hearing about it from? Like what made you pay attention to that? And those are usually individual people's stories who probably want to share them um, with a reporter as well. You know, in other cases, like I did, um, let's see. Oh, yeah, I did something for Sierra magazine, like the magazine of the Sierra Club last Mm. fall about um, fire in Maine. And I'm kind of revisiting that reporting right now. Um, 
for another for a local publication uh but with that it was just like i just called a bunch of people who i knew were going to have some experience with the management and control of fire in the state and at one point one of them said you know oh well there was this guy who was fighting this fire and he said that this crazy thing had happened you know it looked like this western fire where a bunch of trees torched all at once and in that case it was like oh that guy saw something crazy he's going to be able to place himself in this moment and sort of tell me the story of it okay i need to go find that guy yeah no, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually just reading that article about the main the main fires that you wrote before we before we hopped on this call. And you it's it's a great example of kind of the process that you've been describing, right, where you have found this individual with this experience and he's and you're able to kind of place his first person narrative of the situation onto a larger kind of platform so that everyone else can experience it. But is that kind of process of, of sort of casting a wide net and trying to narrow it down to somebody with a unique experience, a unique perspective, is that pretty typical for, 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 for what you try and do? I mean, it's, I think it's typical for me. Um, definitely would not be how other reporters approach it. Um, I, I definitely have a little bit too much of the, um, sort of cerebral like oh i'm interested in the abstract tension in this thing um and so i definitely gravitate more towards those broad topics and then i need to figure out how to get a story out of them um but that's that's just sort of my own personal head or you know my own head's way of being curious about things right yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. But are there situations as well where like, for instance, for the for the outlet that you're working with in New Orleans, I, I recently read a piece you did about sort of the implications of potential issues with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Is that a situation where you're like, look, this is something that's kind of nationwide news. We have people in our city who are getting this vaccine. Go cover this specific thing. Yeah, and I, I do a lot more daily news reporting for the lens to that publication in New Orleans. Um, and so in that case, it is much more like, uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say I do two things for the lens. So I do these enterprise stories that are more like magazine-y things where there's a, you know, you're telling this two-layer story of like, here's a person and here's the context that they're illustrating and occupying and here's why that's a big deal. Um, and then I just do daily news stuff and that, yeah, I, I feel less well-equipped to describe, like, news sense in that context because I really only started doing work for them, I don't know, eight months ago. I don't feel as well-versed in it. But, yeah, there it was like, oh, my God, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is paused I go to press conferences, I go to vaccination events, I talk to vaccine providers, I talk to public health officials. So I just sort of have been in the context. In that case, I had also been talking a ton about hesitancy and access with local experts and officials. And so I knew that all of them had been saying, hey, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is the way that we're going to overcome especially these access barriers um 
And so, you know, we're a smaller outlet. The Times Pick, no, the Times Picayune is the um, sort of big daily paper down here. Um, so generally I need to, when there's sort of a big state or nationwide story on something, I need to have my own angle on it. And in this case, it was like, yeah, I know exactly why the Johnson and Johnson vaccine or what role it's expected to play in vaccine outreach. So let's talk to people about how this, um, how this decision is going to affect that specific work. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I think like, I guess I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about having to find like a different angle. If it's a popular story that's been covered in, in outlets that are, that are larger in your area, like, does it, do you have to sort of get creative with how you cover it or, or, or find like a different perspective to, to tell, to tell those stories from? Always. I mean, I like to, but sometimes it's, um, it's just like, yeah, we're going back to phase whatever, or, you know, there's just some big news that I'm going to be covering and, you know, we're, we want to be sort of making sure that we are a source that people can go to for information on breaking news. So that means covering the same stories as other people in a lot of cases. But I think our, what distinguishes us is we're probably going to get more into policy weeds. And we definitely have sort of an emphasis on open records and documents and open data. And so we do a lot more stories that are sort of focused on whether or not public disclosure is happening. Okay, that makes sense. So regardless of whether it's um, a story for the lens, a story for some of the magazine work that you do, what's kind of your process when you've completed like your first version of the story and you submit it for, for feedback? Is there a lot of feedback, feedback that's given? How much kind of leeway do you have in terms of the finished product after the initial idea for the story has been, um, has been given the okay? It really depends. I mean, with daily news stuff, the process is generally a lot quicker. It's, you know, there's line edits um, in the work I do for popular science. Sometimes there's sort of a little bit of rearranging of paragraphs or something, but generally not a hard rewrite, probably because news just has a little bit more of a set flow to it, right? It's, you know, you're trying to sort of pack the most important information up top and then sort of add context as you go. And so it's it's easy, uh, the structure is sort of less integral to the story. Um, and so edits after the first draft I filed are much more like line edity. Um, yeah, I mean, it can really, really depend. I, in stuff I'm working for for outside and Sierra right now, it's much more like edits have dragged on for months. Um, and that can be both, you know, more reporting needs to go into this place or, you know, we need to move this whole idea up higher so that other stuff can build on it later or can refer back to it um, later. 
there was a second question you asked there, though, which was, oh, is how much say do I have in the final product? Is that yeah, it? Yeah, I would just, I, guess, I think that sort of, I don't know if debate is too strong of a word, but that sort of back and forth between you, the creator of the piece, and then the person, whether it's the editor or, or somebody else in a different role who's kind of cultivating the, the finished product. Is there a lot of kind of back and forth or is it kind of just like you're giving instructions and you sort of have to operate within those bounds? I'm sure I've had situations where I'm given instructions. I mean, National Geographic on the last thing I did for them had this funny, their style guide was, it was really confusing. They didn't want there to be quotes in consecutive paragraphs. Um, so there, there was a lot of editing that was just like, gotta, you know, write through, you know, take out some quotes and paraphrase them and write through places that I hadn't before. And those were just, you know, you got to do this. This is our style. Um, which was fine. I mean, it's mostly a back and forth. Um, the rule that I learned was that if an editor suggests something, you have to, if not accept the suggestion, then you probably should change the underlying thing they were making a suggestion about, even if it's not to what they said, but you have to have to look at it as like, okay, there's something going on here um, that wasn't working. So what can I do? Or obviously you can fight for things here and there, but I, I, that's kind of how I think about it is like, and I have good relationships with all my editors, um, or at least all the ones that I continue working for. Um, right. so, um, so it's when, yeah, when, when somebody makes a suggestion on a line or a phrase, I'm going to do something differently. Um, even if it's not exactly what they suggested. But for the most part, editors are also like, here, I've made a suggestion here, but you can tweak this to get it in your own words. And that's that's great. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, I think that process of sort of diplomatically disassembling the the feedback and the ideas from both parties is, is a really interesting part of, of, of reporting and journalism, right? Because there's these not, there's these negotiable things like the style, um, the, the manner in which you write about it, but then there's the kind of the non-negotiable things, which are the facts. And I imagine, especially writing about science, there's there are not necessarily challenges in terms of, well, there's probably challenges in terms of figuring out what's factual and what is maybe information that's from a non, from a source that maybe isn't super trustworthy. I guess, can you just on a bigger scale, just talk about some of the challenges that you face consistently writing about science? Yeah, let's see. Um... Well, actually, to that point about, you know, making sure things are factual, I guess that's that's the other thing is like the places where I am most likely to say, no, no, we can't make this edit is when something is phrased in a particular finicky way for the sake of accuracy. Um, but like, the, you know, in that case, there is a good... Uh, concrete reason that I can point to about it. Um, and that's something that comes out of a lot of my internship and fellowship 
responsibilities were being a fact checker, um, which is just like go through somebody else's story and you literally re-report the whole thing and make sure that all the details are right. Um, so that's that's kind of the background on that. Um, consistent challenges in reporting on science. I mean, scientists can, I, lots of scientists who I love and I, I just find it such a pleasure to get to talk to scientists all day, but plenty of people have a lot of um, precision in how they talk about their research and a lot of wariness about it being phrased in any other way than they describe it. So sort of getting someone to talk extemporaneously about a field that they, you know, really are in the particulars of can be really challenging. And kind of to that same point, I, um, so one of, the sort of cornerstone media ethics is you don't show unpublished work to a source. Um, so you don't, except in rare circumstances. I, I think it's actually more acceptable in science writing because there are all these specifics. And, you know, I've run individual lines about like a legal issue past a lawyer before and said, is this right? Um, because I don't, there just is a much more concrete, yes, this is correct, no, this is not correct, um, embedded in the specific phrasing. Um, but a lot of, so in general, can't send a whole cloth draft to a source, and a lot of people ask for that. And that's always just a, sort of an awkward thing to navigate to say can't send you the whole document, you know, I can come back and do sort of a quick and dirty fact check with you about this thing. But I know you're going to want to change a lot of quotes in very fiddly ways, which makes sense to you. But that quote is fine. You know, people will understand that you are talking extemporaneously and you are not, you know, misrepresenting your entire fields you know, this is, it's going to be okay. So that's kind of the, the interpersonal challenge that comes up a lot in writing on research. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I imagine, especially in the context of the last kind of 14, 15 months, where there has been this kind of widespread doubt about the validity or invalidity of, of certain claims made about science. And you kind of touched on the responsibility that individual scientists feel to represent the facts, represent the science, represent their brand, their specific niche of the science um, in a positive way. Do you ever kind of encounter situations where you're getting information from a scientist that while correct and valid and, and, and important to the layperson would be um, kind of inaccessible and then how you how I guess I'm curious how you sort of I don't know if distilling it is, is the right word but how you should take complex concepts and and bring them to a place where it can be accessible not only to to experts in that particular field um well so a couple things I mean in an interview 
you have to be really comfortable being naive. Um, that's really helpful when it's like, I don't understand this basic thing. Just tell me what it is. And sometimes it's even just like affecting total ignorance and saying, just explain this to me like I am 10 because maybe I understand it. Maybe I kind of understand it, but couldn't really phrase it myself. Um, that's, that's often helpful or, you know, explain it to me like I'm in high school. Um, a lot of sort of as I'm going through an interview saying, okay, this is how I'm imagining this concept that you're describing to me. This is the frame of reference how I that I have around it. Um, does that make sense? Does that sound right? And sort of getting people to engage with the framing that I'm sort of already thinking in terms of and say, oh, that's right, but missing this element of it or no, no, here's actually a better metaphor. Um, and then in the actual writing, metaphors are really important and are something that I want to work on more because I'm not, I, I think I forget that they're a really useful tool, but that's, yeah, I mean, illustrative metaphors and similes are kind of the the bread and butter of explaining a lot of science. It's like, okay, what's the, yeah, just what other thing does this resemble? Yeah. No, I mean, I think like kind of on that note, I imagine there's in sort of that metaphor creation process, is there kind of a sense of responsibility that you feel to to kind of make these ideas accessible to people, not only for their own personal gain, but for the just the betterment of society as a whole. Like a great example is the piece you wrote recently about, about wasps, right? And there's this misconception that wasps are bad or people have wasps traps, but you kind of, while acknowledging that certain types of wasps are can sting you and, and can be problematic or, or, or cause issues, you also paint them as these important predators in terms of insect control, but also their, their wider role in terms of pollination, especially in for specific species of plants that only work with wasps. I guess, I guess that's kind of me rambling there about your work, but it does this, is there a broader sense of, look, this is, this is not only about me and the person who's reading it, but this is about people taking this information and actually using it. I feel like, I, I guess that's not, it's a totally reasonable question, but not usually how I kind of think in terms of my own work. I mean, at least not on the science reporting side of things. You know, when it's about public health and public policy, yes, definitely. Um, but on, on the science side of things, I, I definitely have, there's sort of a subbeat that I've been thinking of for myself when I'm writing for popular science, which is like, I am curious about ecology and I am curious about the way that sort of Western science and you know, sort of the, the broader cultural imperialism of Western science has shaped how we understand our relationship to the natural world. So, uh, you know, wasps are kind of part of that, right? Like, 
part of the reason that jumped out at me is because I had been listening to these podcasts a while ago by this agricultural scientist named Sarah Tabor, who um, has a whole spiel about how honeybees are kind of overhyped um, as a pollinator, right? They're essentially cattle, but um, especially in the Americas, you know, most native plants are more effectively pollinated by native bees. And so, and that goes back to this long-standing cultural relationship Europeans have with the honeybee, which is in itself super weird. And so I see this thing about wasps and I'm like, oh, that's surprising and interesting. You know, the other stuff I'm thinking about is like the story about forest gardens in British Columbia that I did, which, you know, was hitting on that really, really directly. It's that in, um, or on the sites of these former villages in British Columbia where people were forced out in, the 1800s, early 1900s, um, they had planted and maintained these gardens that don't look like a, you know, open tilled field, but in fact are these persistent places of food crops, consistent places producing food crops and producing biodiversity. Um, and just sort of have this lasting presence on the landscape. And so, I, I mean, I think what I'm interested in is stuff that's surprising, right? Like that's, um, and I guess that's kind of a public service, but it's also just like why I like doing science reporting is I want to know, I, I want something to sort of change the way that I, understand something that I was taking as a given um, and would like other people to get that out of um, out of the research that I'm looking at too. Yeah, absolutely. I think I kind of hear you talking about sort of, I guess on a broader sense, the value of perspective and the value of different perspectives. I think you're, what, what you said about kind of the Western imperialism's impact on the way that we view obviously lots of things, but I think that just specifically science, right. is something that I haven't considered um, personally, right. It certainly has its, has its, has its influences in, in history and how we learn about the way things that happened, but the, the vestiges of, of imperialism or not even vestiges, the, the imperialism itself is still very much relevant um, today in terms of how we look at things, whether it's honeybees, whether it's, the, the makeup of, of, of forests in British Columbia. Is there a, is there, is there a sort of a sense on, or a balance that you try to strike between kind of like the entertainment slash education of those kind of moments that you described or like, huh, this is a totally different way of looking at something that um, I've seen kind of in this other way um, before. I feel like I should be goofier. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm working on being goofy here. Um, cause I mean, it's like what makes a lot of the reporting that I like best, at least in audio, really effective. And obviously I'm not in audio and uh, print reporting is often a lot more buttoned up. Although, you know, one of my favorite writers is John Mualem who lives out on Bainbridge and 
he is a funny, funny writer who touches on not totally dissimilar stuff. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I don't often think in terms of entertainment. I think of in terms of clarity and yeah, maybe little sort of moments of, you know, um, little twists within a sentence, but it's not, it's not the framework that I'm thinking in usually. And we definitely like to think about it more directly, but it's not, it's not something I have a, a head around. So I guess I, I'm curious then what, what sort of is this, is, is the kind of framework with which you sort of position yourself as you, as you approach writing your pieces? I mean, it's really like why, A, why did the scientists think this was interesting to write about it? And what, why do I find it surprising? It's like, what is, um, what's startling about this and i think really starting with what the scientist finds surprising about it is kind of the important part because in a lot of cases especially when i'm writing about a paper that's in science or nature or pnas or plus one you know one of the leading journals that are really hard to get into and a lot of scientists get into only infrequently asking just like why was this you know, why do you think this was a, a nature paper? You know, why did the editors take it? It's usually a really good way of getting someone to zoom out and say, here's why this is a significant, um, this is a significant issue. Yeah, no, that's really well said. Um, yeah, and, and also really interesting. I think one thing that you touched on at the beginning of our conversation was this, I think you said 50% of of in-print reporters are no longer reporting. Um, and I can't remember from how many years ago you said that was, but there's certainly a transition in journalism from being paper-based to I think eventually probably 100% online. Do you see, I mean, are there ramifications, be it positive or negative of, of that transition? Um, not really, I mean, yeah, not not really beyond the sort of broad scale societal negatives of everything being online. Just right. harder to contextualize things. It's harder to focus your attention on them. Um, yeah, I, I still would rather read, especially long form journalism in print because it's easier to pay attention to. But that's more of a, a broader contextual thing than about journalism specifically. I mean, I think the real issue is just that a lot of people have lost their jobs and the transition to, I mean, the, the bigger issue is just that there are not as many publications employing as many reporters now as there were um, two years ago even, but especially 20 years ago. Um, yeah, and you know that's taken a bunch of different forms. There's there was this whole wave of blogs that got folded into publications. You know, like um, I don't know what's a good example of this. Uh, 
I'm not going to remember what it's called. But all, all of these blogs that got sort of traction and then were eaten up by behemoths and then um, folded. So there have been kind of these waves in the digital transition. But yeah, I mean, I also just don't really have the perspective to make long-term um, long predictions about the journalism industry because I've only been doing journalism for like three years. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea for sure. But I know that we're coming up um, at the end of the, to, towards the end of the time. I, so I just want to thank you first and foremost for coming on. This has been really cool. And there was one thing I wanted to underscore that you mentioned before that I thought was really important. And that is the idea that you talk about sometimes in interviews where you are intentionally naive or are intentionally, um, or yeah, it just appear that you don't necessarily know exactly what's going on, which I think is, is something that can be difficult for people just in general, like we all are, are happy when we kind of know everything that's going on, but it's also a really important thing just in terms of, of opening um, yourself up to new ideas and new perspectives. So I wanted to acknowledge and, and, and commend that for sure. It's really hard. Um, yeah. And it's something I'm still working on, but I think it's probably the situation where I'm thinking most actively about a reader is in that conversation saying, okay, what, what is someone else going to need to know from this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that was, that, that was awesome for sure. And this whole conversation has been, has been super, super great. So I'm very happy that we could make it, make it happen. Phillips, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time. Yeah, really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Wallace. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. If you found it valuable, please do what you can to share it with others. As always, you can connect with us on Instagram at the sep is in the prep, or if you'd like to reach out to me directly, I can be found on all social media platforms under the handle at wallapse11. Thanks and take care.